Would you go ahead and open them to Nehemiah chapter 9? We've been making our way through the book of Nehemiah, and uh, as I shared at the beginning, if you were here when we began looking through this, um, it's, uh, it's often been the case that the book of Nehemiah has been, in a sense, uh, I think kind of denigrated a little bit to the story of rebuilding a wall or even a story of, of Nehemiah's great leadership. And I don't think that either one of those are necessarily the main theme of the book of Nehemiah. Those are the events that surround what we have been looking at in the book of Nehemiah. But really what we've discovered in the book of Nehemiah is how great our God really is, how powerful He is, how sovereign He is, and how He has the ability to work things out for His glory and for our good as His people. Now you will remember that uh, the, the backdrop of Nehemiah is that the people of Israel had been captive. This has been a theme for the people of Israel. You remember in the book of Exodus, uh, they are basically a slave people in Egypt. God raises up Moses and Moses leads the people out of slavery. And eventually they come into the promised land. And in the promised land, God has given his commands to them. He has told them you're to be uh, different. You're to be a peculiar people, if you will. And he's consistently given them the command to remember that there are no gods other than than him. And so the people are not to be involved in idolatry and worship of other gods, but you know human nature as well as I do. When we're told not to do something, that old sin nature shows up, and there's just something that draws us to that. You see a sign that says, keep off the grass. First inclination, I'm going to step on that grass, because there is a rebellious nature to us. And so the people did that. They went after other gods, and God would bring them back. They went after gods, God, uh, other gods, and God would bring them back. And here they've gone after other gods. They've been, they've been an idolatrous nation. And so God has given them over to the Babylonians. And for 70 years, they were captive to the Babylonians. And then there have been groups of them that have been able to go back to Israel. Uh, the book right before Nehemiah in your Old Testament is the book of Ezra. Ezra led a group of people back into Israel, and they rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. Nehemiah comes and a group comes with him to Israel and they see the, the walls around the city indicative of the glory and the grandeur of God because this is God's city, Jerusalem. And so they, they set out to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem for God's glory. That was completed. The task of rebuilding the wall was completed back in chapter 7. Then in chapter 8, God begins to send a revival among his people. They come back to an understanding for the last 70 years, we've been without the word of God. And so they come back to the word of God and Ezra the scribe proclaims the word of God to them, explains what it means. And God begins to deal with the hearts of his people to remind them what got you in the mess you were in was the fact that you forgot I was God and there are no other gods beside me. 
And so the revival begins in chapter 8, and it continues into chapter 9, which is what we look at this morning. Now, I just uh, just want to give you fair warning this morning. We're going to run through the entirety of chapter 9, but we're not going to go into great detail on each of the verses of chapter 9, okay? I'm going to break it so don't get worried to think, oh my goodness, he read in chapter 8 that they had a service that lasted six hours, and he's going to take them serious. No, I'm not going to do that that to you, two and a half maximum, okay? And then we'll, we'll be out of here. Um, the revival begins in chapter 8, and what we discovered in chapter 8 is that, that there, there is a linking of God's Word to revival among the people. God always uses Scripture to revive His people. And if you, have, if you have something that you might call revival, apart from the Word of God, you've just got emotionalism. You don't have revival because God always ties revival to the proclamation of his word. That has been true, not just in the book of Nehemiah, uh, not, not just, it, it, well, well, we'll get into that. But you even look historically at what has happened historically and the Welsh revivals of the 19th century, there was the proclamation with boldness of the word of God and God used that to grip people's hearts. When you have the great awakenings and you have Edwards and, the, and, and Whitfield, and you've got the Wesley brothers, God tied revival to the preaching and the proclamation of his word. Same thing in the Reformation of the 1600s, and, and you even go back to the first revival recorded in all of history with the prophet Jonah. Remember Jonah? God tells him, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach to them because they're a wicked city and they need to know me. And Jonah doesn't want to do that and he tries to run from God, but God brings him back. And then Jonah travels throughout Nineveh and what does he do? He proclaims the word of God to them and there is a citywide revival that takes place. God always ties revival to the proclamation of his word. And one of the first ever Evidences of true revival is a profound awareness of sin and sorrow for it. That's why God uses his word to bring revival. Because in his word, he proclaims his holiness, his glory, his perfection. And he says to us, we have not kept that perfect standard. We have sinned, all of us. Paul says uh, in Romans 3, uh, echoing what God said through the prophet Isaiah, that we've all sinned, every single one of us is a sinner. And the first true evidence of revival is a profound awareness of the fact that we are sinners and a true sorrow for that. This is exactly what happened in Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 9. We, we saw the beginnings of it over in chapter 8. In chapter 8 verse 9, we read that Nehemiah was the governor, Ezra the priest described, the Levites taught the people... And they said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Why did they say that? Because we're told for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They heard God's word and it cut them to their core. And they realized we've not been living by the standard that God has set. And it brought them to weeping and to mourning over that. Now we come to Nehemiah chapter 9. 
And I want you to look at the first few verses with me and discover this revival that comes. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and, and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. You see what's beginning to happen here. You see God's dealings with his people. The word of God is proclaimed. And we know just from, from a cursory glance at chapter 8 and chapter 9 that we've got about a month of time going on here in these two chapters. And you know what the people were doing? We see the consistent habit and pattern of their lives. They were assembled together and the word of God was proclaimed to them. Now, I want to make just a couple of introductory remarks about this, this notion of revival before we really jump into the text really good. First of all, as I've already mentioned, I want you to remember this, revival is always linked to God's Word. Revival is always linked to God's Word. It's why we read in verse 3, they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. God reveals Himself in His Word. And as He reveals Himself in His Word, we come to understand who He is. As we understand who He is, then we understand who we are, and it brings revival to us. If today you are in need of reviving, do not neglect this book. Revival doesn't come separated from the book of God. A second introductory truth, not only is revival always linked to God's word, but when revival comes, there is always an individual and a corporate aspect to it. Look at verse 2 again. The Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins... They all confessed their sins. There's an individual aspect to this. I can't confess your sins. I can confess my sins. But then look at what they did. They confessed the iniquities of their fathers. They said, not only have I sinned, but we acknowledge that as a people, we have gone against you. We have turned away from you. Confessing, that means to agree with God about the nature of what's going on. And the people are coming along and they're saying, listen, our fathers, the reason we were in captivity is because we as a nation rebelled against God and stepped into idolatry. But the problem is not just what we as a nation have done. The problem is what I as a person has done. And so they confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. There is an individual aspect to it, and there is a corporate aspect to it. And that simply makes sense because God has called us together, and he says that we are a body. We are linked to one another. We're united to one another. We belong to one another. And so it makes sense that if God does something in an individual's life, that's going to have an impact on other lives as well. It should if we're rightly connected to one another as we're supposed to be, it's going to have an impact on other people's lives as well. The events of Nehemiah 8 and Nehemiah 
take place within this focus on the Word of God. And I, I want to remind you again of what they did when they came together in Nehemiah chapter 8. The people gathered expectantly. They gathered expecting God to move and God to speak. They listened attentively to the Word of God being proclaimed. They responded appropriately when the Word of God was given, and then they departed joyfully at the fulfillment of God's Word before them. And then in the second part of Nehemiah chapter 8, they returned to an area of obedience to God's Word because they realized, hey, God has said we're supposed to be having this, this feast and this observance. We're not doing it. We need to go back and do it. That, listen, the simple step of obedience to God's Word is so profoundly important. When you read in God's Word something that should be taking place in your life, take the steps to make it happen. When you read in God's Word something that should not be happening, take the steps to make it not happen. It's simple obedience to what God gives in His Word. And so here we have in Nehemiah chapter 9, uh, we, we read that they stood in their place, read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Now, those of us who are consummate clock watchers, I know that we are really squirming when we read this stuff in Nehemiah chapter 8. In chapter 8, verse 3, we, we read that they were going from early morning to noon, from daybreak to noon, Chapter 8, verse 13, it was more of the same. Chapter 8, verse 18, this was going on day after day after day. Can I just make this application to you? Let me just make this application to you of what we see in Nehemiah chapter 8 and Nehemiah chapter 9. Make it a disciplined habit in your life to be a student of the Word of God. That's what we see happening. That's when God sent revival. Friends, listen, we talk about the need for revival in our nation. We talk about the need for revival within our churches. But until we get serious about that and bring ourselves to what God has said to us in His Word, God is not going to bring revival to us. As long as we ignore and neglect His Word, God is not going to bring revival to us. It all comes down to the simple fact that we need to be people of the Word of God and know what God has said to us in His Word. And what you see in Nehemiah 8 and Nehemiah 9 is they were in the habit of doing this on a consistent basis. In fact, when you read through it, it gives the impression that daily they were in the Word of God. Daily they were hearing what God had to say within His Word. Make it a disciplined habit in your life of hearing from God in His Word. I'm not telling you you've got to read a chapter every day. I'm not telling you you've got to read five chapters every day. Sometimes it's as simple as reading a verse of what God says and applying that verse in your life. But make it a disciplined habit of knowing God's Word. Don't neglect it. Don't neglect the doing of that. Then we read in chapter 9, verse 3, they stood in their places, read from the book of the law for a quarter of the day. That's three hours. The day is 12 hours. Night is another 12 hours as they reckon time, and we as well. And so a quarter of the day, they stand and they read from the book of the law. And then for another quarter, another three hours, they are there worshiping God, celebrating Him making confession of sin. Can you imagine what that would be like? Do you think there was a hunger for God's Word here? Boy, I think there was. 
On a consistent basis, they are gathering for hours at a time to say, we want to know what God says. What does God give to us in his word? There was a hunger for God's word. Can can you imagine the, the preparations they had to make to do this? Let me, let me just say something to you. We are prepared to arrange our lives for something that we enjoy or something that's important to us, aren't we? Aren't we? We're prepared to arrange our lives for something that we enjoy. We're prepared to arrange our lives for something that's important to us. How important is the hearing of God's Word and the study of God's Word to you? What arrangements do you need to make in your life so that you consistently are a student of God's Word? I want to just pinpoint a few things for you during this six-hour service that was going on. First of all, I want you to notice their clothing. What what we wear is important, isn't it? (laughs) Well, probably not in the way you think, but I want you to look at this. Look at what they're wearing. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting. What were they wearing? Sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Notice what they're wearing. Now, I've had a lot of people over the years tell me, Pastor, you need to wear a suit. (laughs) But I've never had anybody say, Pastor, you need to be wearing sackcloth. But sometimes I think sackcloth would be more appropriate than wearing a suit. Because you see, the sackcloth, I mean, this, this, is, this is like wearing um, a potato sack. That's what this is like. A burlap bag, that's what this is like that they're wearing. It is itchy, it is uncomfortable, and they're wearing this sackcloth and they've got dust on their head. This was a sign of mourning in that culture. They would sit down in this sackcloth and they would throw the dust up in the air as an indication of their mourning and their grief. Why were they mourning? Why were they grievous? Because they had been confronted with the Word of God and they realized we're not living up to God's standard. We're not living by the standard that God has set for us. And this is an expression of self-humiliation. It's uncomfortable. It's itchy. Our sin should make us uncomfortable. We shouldn't be able to get comfortable in it. We shouldn't. Far too often we do. We shouldn't. And they say, really and truly, when you get down to it, I'm nothing but dust, and I realize that. And so this expression outwardly of what's going on inwardly. Now listen, I know it's easy to fake this. I mean, we can all run down to Belk today and see if they've got any sackcloth in the back. And we can buy a sackcloth suit and we can throw some dirt on our heads or something like that. And we can fake this. We can fake the outward appearance. But friends, you cannot fake what's going on inside. You can't fake it. You can't fake it to yourself. You can't fake it to God. And the people that you're closest to, you usually can't even fake it to them because they know us. Where's your heart? Where's your heart? When you're confronted with the Word of God and the Word of God convicts you and the Word of God reminds you you're not where you need to be, where is your heart? 
Do we continue in the rebellion and the disobedience to say, I'm not going to bring it to God? Or do we come in humility, knowing that God already knows it? Where's your heart? Notice where they were as well. In verse 2 we read, The Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners, stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They're clothed in sackcloth. They've got ashes on their head denoting humility and, 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 and a period of grief and mourning over their own sin. And here they are separating themselves from foreigners. Separating themselves. From, what in the world does this mean? Well, you go back to the Old Testament book of Leviticus, just, just before Nehemiah a little bit, and you read in Leviticus chapter 20, God's commands to his people. He says, you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I'm driving out before you, for they did these things and therefore I detested them. God says, don't be like the pagans around you. Don't adopt their gods. Don't worship the, 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 the things that they worship. Be different from them. Why? Why does God say, I want you to be different from the people around you? Well, in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, we're told, he says, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. God says, I want you to be set apart to me. I want you to be holy to me. I want you to be peculiar in the fact that you belong to me. Let the world look at you and see that there is a difference between them and you. They might make fun of you. They might mock you. They might ridicule you, but the prayer is that they will be drawn to know who God is as a result of the fact that He has made you different. Be different than this world. Be different than the gods of this world. The picture of this for, for us in the New Testament age finds its expression most powerfully in the picture of a God who redeems people for himself. 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about this where Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, the, the application of Nehemiah chapter 9 for us today is simply that if you are in Christ, you're different. Radically different. You're called to be different. Different in your speech, different in your beliefs, different in your ideology, different in your worldview. We are called to be different. That doesn't mean that we put down the world around us because we were there. And the only reason we're not there now is because of the grace of God given to us. But it means that we are different from them. The hope that we have in Christ. Notice their clothing. Notice where they were. Notice what they said. Verse 2 again, they stood and confessed their sins. 
They stood and confessed. For a quarter of the day, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. See, there is a direct correlation between knowing God's Word and the confession of sin. And it, it's amazing to me. I, I don't have... I, my goal is not to come on a Sunday morning and just tell you how bad you are. That's not my goal. My goal is to tell you how good God is. But when you see how good God is... <laughs> I can't help but see where I'm missing it. When I see how great God is, I can't help but miss see in my own life where I am missing that and not living up to that. It, it, and I know people want this in their churches. They, they, they just want to go and they want to feel good and everything's great and everything's grand and just tell me good stuff. And you know, if I were to go to my doctor and he lived by that same rule, I might die because of it. My doctor might know, you, you've got a problem, dude. You, you are overweight, your cholesterol's through the roof, I think you might have cancer. But then he says, man, it's all right. You're good, you just keep doing what you're doing. You're good. Good all the way to the grave. We don't want that. We need to be reminded of the goodness of God, and in being reminded of the goodness of God, we see where we miss so that we might come to Him because you know why God does? He removes the badness and forgives us of it so that we are able to become His child and live in relationship with Him. That, that's, that's where we got to keep coming back to this. When the Word of God is proclaimed, sin is pinpointed and defined, and sin comes out of its hiding place. That's exactly what happened in Nehemiah chapter 9. The people came to repentance and confession because they saw the glory and the greatness of God. And look at how they saw it. In, in verse 6, let's just run through this real quick. They see His greatness in creation. You are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You've made it all. Look at the goodness of God. Isn't He great? Isn't He big? Isn't He awesome? He created all of this. But not only that, look at the rest of chapter of verse 6 there. And you preserve all of them. The host of heaven worships. You get that? Here's what God is saying. He created all of it and He cares about it. He preserves it. He created you and He cares about you. He preserves you. He is good in creation. Look at his greatness in history. In verse 7, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made him with him the covenant to give uh, to his offspring the land uh, of the Canaanite. God comes along and in his dealings with Abraham, the call of Abraham, we see God calling Abraham out and giving him a new name and giving him a son. And when you read through this, when you look at verse 7 and verse 8, you see God being the subject of every action. God did this. You read it this way. You did this. You did this. You did this. And the focus is on God and what he has done. Can I just tell you, friends, when we get that perspective right, it changes everything. So that the focus is not me, 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 but you, 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 you. Reorder your life 
around him rather than yourself because it's all about him. When you come down to verse 9, you see God dealing with the, the people in the Exodus. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. And you read down to verse 12 about how God redeemed his people out of Egypt. And again, you get it. You, 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 God, you have done this. When you come down to verse 13 and you see God giving the law on Mount Sinai to Moses and the people. Again, it is all about you and you and you, God. But then... Look at verse 16. Look at what happens. After all of this, you, 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 God. In verse 16. But they. That's the problem. They. They and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandment. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. They stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Look at it. We move from you to they. That's the problem. That's the problem. It's a problem in your life. It's the problem in my life. We move from you to they. To me, to I, that's when the problem gets real. We make ourselves God rather than Him being God. But would you look again at verse 17? Very next phrase, right in the middle of it, but you. There it is. There it is. Man. Those two words to me, just they sum up the gospel. <laughs> but you, God, you did this. They rebelled. I rebelled. I went in disobedience. But you, bring it back to God. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Oh, friends, get off of they, get on you. Get away from yourself and get to God. What's the focus of your life? What is the focus and the consuming presence of your life? Is it yourself or is it God? And see, throughout this, we read that God, God gave. God gave so much, and yet they still rebelled. What's interesting is in this chapter alone, in chapter 19, at least 16 times in the Scripture, we find God who gives. God gave God, that's his nature. It's his character. He is a God who gives. To Adam, he gave a wife. To Abraham, he gave a new name and a son. To Moses, he gave a call. To Israel, he gave a land. To Hannah, he gave a child. To David, he gave a kingdom. To Isaiah, he gave a vision. To Jeremiah, he gave a message. To the shepherds, he gave a song. To the world, he gives a savior. Which is why we read in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave. 
He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. He is a God who gives. He's a God who gives redemption. And that's the greatness of God in response to His goodness. We give rebellion. But in response to our rebellion, He gives redemption. That's why we read in Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. He gave. That's what God does. In answer to our rebellion, God gives redemption. Some of you today are in need of that redemption. Some of you today have never trusted in Christ. Some of you today are not in need of revival. You have nothing to revive. You've never been brought into the family. You are today still carrying your own sin yourself. And the good news of the gospel is that God can take that sin and through the work of Jesus Christ, when you come in repentance and faith to Him, He can remove that from you. He can forgive you and He can make you radically different. He can change you. Make your heart where it was never before. God can do that. Some of you need to trust Him for that. Some of you today are living under the curse of your sin. And the call to you today is trust in Jesus Christ. Trust Him alone for salvation. Even at this moment, call out to Him in confession that you are a sinner, but in thanksgiving that Jesus has died in your place and has purchased a place in heaven for you. Come in trust. Come in faith to Him. Some of you today have done that. Some of you have trusted in Christ for salvation. Some of you have been brought into the family. But there is a tremendous need of revival in your heart. A work of the Spirit of God to take place. And today God wants to begin that. He wants to begin that with you. And He's bringing you back to His Word. And He's opening it before you to say, What will you do with my Word? Will you come in confession? Will you come in repentance back to Him? Or will you just hang out there in your rebellion, in your sinful wickedness apart from Him? See, he, he, God wants to restore His people. God wants to bring us out of that. Will you trust Him to do it? Father, this morning we thank You for Your Word. Father, I pray today, please, through your Spirit, would you speak to our hearts now. Father, I pray that as your Word has been proclaimed, you through your Spirit would use it to prick our hearts and bring us where you want us to be. 
For those who do not know Jesus, I pray that today, Father, would be the day they come to know Him. Please, Father, please, I beg, bring them to confession and repentance in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would soften that heart and I pray that they would be receptive to the word that's given and that today they might come to confess faith in Christ. I pray for us as your children, Father, that you would do a work of revival among us. That your word would be always before us. We would always be in submission to it. So now, Father, speak Through your spirit we ask in Jesus' name, amen.